This is our fourth time starting a book. We began Matthew years ago, and then First Timothy, went back to the Gospels, Gospel of John. Now here we are back, the pastoral epistles, Second uh, Timothy. Um, it has been one of the hallmark uh, uh, values of our church to always uh, preach God's word, where we gather around the scriptures. So we're committing ourselves to at least a year-long study, at least perhaps even two years, a verse-by-verse study of this precious book. Now, before we begin this book, I want to read the whole book together, once through on Sunday morning. I couldn't do this with Matthew. I didn't do this with 1 Timothy. I should have. I couldn't do it with John, 21 chapters. But with 2 Timothy, it's not only possible, but it is mandated by the scriptures for us to do this. I know that in contemporary Christianity and the modern church, the public reading of scripture has gone out of style. You can go to a church service and you would barely hear someone read even a portion of the scriptures, let alone a passage, definitely not a chapter and most definitely not a whole book. But the command of Scripture is for believers to gather and read God's Word together. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul told Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.27, listen to this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He puts the recipients under oath to make sure that they read this book to all the brethren. Colossians 4.16 When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read this letter from Laodicea. So, it was a common practice and it was a mandated practice for believers to gather together and read Paul's epistles beginning to the end. That has gone out of style. It's no longer practiced largely by most churches. But we want to be obedient to the scriptures. We have a great opportunity as we start 2 Timothy. So we will do so this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Get comfortable. We're going to go all the way to chapter 4, verse 22. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. But the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, he will, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irrelevant babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." 
now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that, hoping that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endure, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue on what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am being, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, which I have sent to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. We've just finished a four-part study in the Apostle Paul. Many of you said, Pastor James, I never knew all these things about the Apostle Paul. My respect for him has grown tremendously. My estimation of his character, his godliness, has grown exponentially through our study of this great man. And my love for him has grown. And I agree with every point. Through our study of the great apostle, he was a spiritual giant, a fitting, proper model for all of us as we pursue Christ. And we have this veritable treasure in Second Timothy. Second Timothy has that particular appeal because it contains the last known words of this great and beloved man. D. Edmund Heber wrote this in his introduction to the Second Timothy, in his commentary. D. Edmund Heber said, Here we have the final moving words of that mighty warrior. He was a mighty warrior of the cross, and as he faces death, he is unafraid. It is the dying appeal of the apostle to his young associate, 
exhorting him to steadfastness in the ministry in the face of appalling difficulties. It is the most personal of the pastoral epistles. It is rich in personal details and gives us a fitting closing picture of the dauntless messenger of Christ, tender and sympathetic, heroic and grand to the very end. Paul wrote this letter fully aware that his time of departure was indeed near. This letter constitutes Paul's dying testimony, his parting appeal to his beloved son in the gospel, Timothy. It has rightly been called Paul's last will and testament to Timothy and through him to each and every one of us. Paul has given to us his last words. Of all the letters of Paul, arguably this is the most personal one. The other one that comes close would be 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, he's writing to an obstinate church, a church that is rebellious, a church that is repenting, but still got a long ways to go before it is fully reconciled to Christ and reconciled to Paul. 2 Timothy, nothing of the sort. He's writing to a beloved son in the faith. He knows his days on earth are numbered. And he pours out his heart to him. What he lived for, what he suffered for, and what he died for. He proves and he tells Timothy. And through this letter, he proves and tells each and every believer here. We need to uh, rightly understand the situation in which Paul is writing this letter for us to fully understand and rightly understand um, his words. We want to jump right in. We will do so very soon. But before we, we did a study of Paul, we need to do a study of Paul's situation in which Paul wrote his last letter. We find out that Paul is again in Rome, 117, that he is a prisoner, refers to himself as the Lord's prisoner, chapter 1, verse 8. He mentions the fact that he is chained like a criminal, chapter 1, verse 16. It is easy for many Bible students to confuse his imprisonment in Acts 28 and his imprisonment in 2 Timothy. Many people think that Acts closes with Paul being confined in house arrest and doing ministry in Rome. And we think that is when he wrote 2 Timothy. I think I said this a few weeks ago. That is where he wrote his quote-unquote prison epistles, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. Well, that's a misnomer. Not really a prison epistle. It's more like house arrest epistles. The true prison epistle is Second Timothy. This is not the same imprisonment. It is a different imprisonment. We must be careful here. If, if we're not, we will fail to benefit from the richness of this book. We must be careful to distinguish Paul's current imprisonment here in Second Timothy with the imprisonment at the close 
of the book of Acts. Very different. Let me contrast these two situations to show that they are different imprisonments. In Acts 28, Paul was treated with, with considerable indulgence by the Roman government. He was given permission to live 28.16 by himself with just a single soldier guarding him. In 2 Timothy, he is kept in close confinement, regarded as a criminal, with many soldiers guarding him. He was in chains, languishing in a Roman prison with little light to read or to write by, no sanitation, no prospect of relief except by death. His first imprisonment at Rome had a measure of relative comfort. Not anymore. When he's writing this letter, he's in a cold, dark, and damp dungeon. It's amazing that he couldn't even write. His closing request gives us an insight to his conditions where he says, bring my cloak and come before winter where he knows that it will be very cold and he's asking Timothy for, for to meet his need physically. In Acts 28, he was surrounded by a considerable circle of co-workers and friends. Believers in Rome gathered around him and ministered alongside him. Colossians 4 talks about this. Colossians 4, 10 through 14. I'll just read to you. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, greets you as well. Epaphras greets you. Luke, the physician, greets you as does Demas. Many people are ministering alongside him and encouraging him in in the ministry. Acts 28, 30 and 31 tells us that he lived in house arrest for two whole years at his own expense. He rented a little studio for him to reside. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In fact, he invited uh, leaders of the Jewish faith to his home, to his where he was arrested under house arrest, and he would proclaim the gospel and debate scriptures with them. But in 2 Timothy, he is now almost all alone. He said in first in chapter four eleven, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because Luke is the only one who is with me. Verse 16, No one came by to stand by me, but all deserted me. During Acts 28, he was freely accessible to all who wished to see him, but in 2 Timothy, Onesiphorus could only find him after a diligent search and at great personal risk. When you wrote the prison epistles, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, he was confident that he'd be released. And his letters indicated a longing to see the believers and visit them and continue on in his ministry. Not in Second Timothy. He is not uh, thinking about being released and continuing on his ministry. He knows the end is near. 
He knows that death is looming. That's why he wrote in first chapter 4, 6 through 8, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, past tense. I have finished the race, past tense. I have kept the faith, past tense. Now, all I am looking for is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who long for His appearing. These differences are best and most simply explained by the fact that Paul experienced two imprisonments in Rome. Evidently, Paul was arrested in Acts 28. He was in house arrest for two years. He, he, he did public ministry. He had co-workers serving with him. And he was released. And according to his desire expressed in Romans, he went to Spain to continue the gospel ministry, to spread the gospel to those who have not yet heard the gospel. After some time in Spain... He journeyed back and passed through Rome. But during that time, the socio-political climate was very different in Rome. On July 19th, AD 64, a great fire burst forth in Rome and raged incessantly for six days and seven nights. Further destructive fires followed a few days later. Half of the city's 14 districts were razed to the ground and only four escaped any damage. Nero was at a nearby city. He hurried back to Rome. When he saw the fires blazing, historians said, he sang a song called The Burning of Troy to his guitar. Not only the wooden shacks of the poor, but also the stone mansions of the rich, the massive public buildings, the magnificent pagan temples and shrines were gutted. Roman historian Tacitus wrote, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the fire was the result of an order by Nero himself. The rumor was that Nero started the fire because he wanted to rebuild the city according to his pride, according to his efforts. So Nero wanted to uh, get rid of this rumor, and so he picked on the most convenient group of people to blame. He blamed the Christians. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christians were called atheists because they were monotheists. Romans were polytheists and they considered Christians as rejecting their gods. They were hated by the Roman people, viewed with great suspicion. So began a great uh, campaign of torture and persecution against the Christians. Christians being thrown into the Colosseum to be killed by animals, killed by gladiators. Christians lined along the streets, fastened to the walls, covered with wax to be burned alive at night. You would hear the screams of Christians uh, screaming out in the middle of the night was, began, was begun by, by Nero. Christianity overnight became an illegal religion. And the savage persecutions followed. When Paul returned from Spain in AD 66, his enemies 
took advantage of the turn of events against Christianity and soon contrived to bring about his arrest and imprisonment. Now, we're not exactly sure. We, we doubt that he was arrested in Rome. Bible students and scholars believe that he was arrested in a nearby city, perhaps Corinth, Nicopolis, but most likely they believe he was arrested in Troas because Paul left his cloak there. Paul left books and parchments that was important for his study and his ministry. He had to leave so hurriedly that he left those behind. So he requests Timothy to bring them with him. So most likely they say he was arrested in Troas brought to Rome during a time when it was filled with terror and danger to Christianity and he was called to account to defend um, against his accusations. Well, at this time, Paul's trial came up. He was accused of a capital crime. Paul appealed to certain notable Christian men in Asia, men who were familiar with him, with his work, with his character, to come and testify on his behalf. But because of the hostile attitude of the government, because of the personal dangers involved, no one came to Paul's defense. His first imprisonment, they were all his friends. Paul had countless number of co-workers and fellow believers serving alongside him. But during this arrest, when he asked for help, they all ran in fear and cowardice. They would not come to Paul's aid. Now, if that was me, I was arrested. And who should I pick on, right? I call out and say, hey, Eugene, right? You graduated UPenn. You know something, right? Or I'll pick on Brian. Where's the lawyer here, right? Brian, you're a lawyer. Come to my aid. And because of persecution, they don't come to my aid. What would be my prayer? God have vengeance, right? <laughs> God, remember their names. Eugene Kim, Brian Kang. Eugene lives in Cerritos. Brian lives in Downey. Remember them, O oh Lord. But not Paul. No one comes to his aid, but what is his prayer? May it not be held against them. Right? Immediately. He has nothing but love and compassion for these men who deserted him. So he had no one to plead his case. So he, he defended himself. Paul courageously took up his own, own defense, just like he did before Felix and King Agrippa. He confronted and repelled every accusation, every bold confrontation levied against him by his enemies. And it was somewhat successful. He was remanded to prison and the case was adjourned for further study of the court. Paul said he escaped the lion's mouth. He knew he had escaped imminent danger of death, but he knew that his execution by the Roman authorities was merely postponed, was merely delayed, just a matter of time. Seeing how Christians were being persecuted all over the Roman Empire, it was just a matter of time when he would be executed, he would be martyred for the faith. It was in this situation, in a in prison, last days, weeks, months left, that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Now, why is Paul writing this letter? What is the purpose of this epistle? Three purposes, three reasons behind 
Paul's letter to Timothy. Now, first one's great. First reason is because of Timothy's need. Timothy's need. Paul's not writing out of his own need. Paul's not writing to get sympathy or help or ministry to himself. Paul's writing so that he might minister to Timothy. Oh, we got to read, read this letter and study this letter with this mindset, with this clearly in our minds. Every time we gather together around 2 Timothy, we need to remember, as we are being ministered to by this book, here's a guy in prison about to be killed, about to be executed, and he is ministering to us. He is challenging, he's encouraging, he's strengthening us. And by doing that, he's modeling the heart of ministry. The heart of ministry is service. Serving others when they have need. It's not about us. It's not about having our needs met. Not about having our comforts, being, uh, receiving our comforts, or having our prayers answered. It's about, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of what pain or sorrow or child that we are going through, our heart is, like Paul to serve others. And where did Paul learn this from? He learned it from Christ himself. Learned it from the Lord. Paul was led to write this letter because of his fatherly concern for Timothy because Timothy was going through a dark time. D.M. and Hebert again said, The hostility of the Roman government toward Christianity had cast an ominous cloud over Timothy as a Christian leader. He was exposed to fearful danger. Humanly speaking, the fury of the Neronian persecutions had left the church trembling on the brink of extinction. The Roman Empire was intolerant of secret societies and it knew how to extinguish them. In such an hour, to be a leader in the church was to be hated and marked for destruction. And for a timid soul like Timothy, the prospects were terrifying. We could forgive Paul if he wrote in this letter, Timothy, what are you afraid of? Why are you complaining? I'm in prison, right? I'm about to die and you're writing to me, telling me about your fears, your anxieties, your concerns. Like, I would forgive him. But Paul does no such thing. He understands um, uniqueness of each individual and how God tailor makes sufferings and trials and temptations for each person and their faith. And so Paul was going through this because God had granted him faith to endure through this trial and it was, he had enough grace to stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Likewise for Timothy, what he was going through was sufficient for him, was a test for him. So without judging him, he was ministering to his son in the faith. He knew Timothy's natural timidity. Paul was concerned that the threatening prospect should overwhelm him. Thus Paul wrote to him to rally his courage, to keep him steadfast in this dark hour and to bid him be strong in the Lord. 
Jesus Christ. We'll look at this more in-depthly, but I believe this is why he asserts his apostolic identity in chapter 1, verse 1. He begins the letter, it's a personal letter to Timothy, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He's writing a personal letter to a dear friend, and he uses such a former, formal uh, title for himself. Is it self-glory? Is it pride? Right. Is he just boasting in his role? Why is he doing this? I believe this is what Timothy needed. Timothy needed to be reminded that the person writing to him was not just a friend, was not just his leader and shepherd, but was an apostle of Christ. And that he was writing to him with the authority of Christ, with the, the rights with the power of Christ. Paul identified himself as an apostle, not for his sake, but for Timothy's sake. Does that make sense? A simple illustration might be, you're in the hospital, you're in the ER, the doctors examine you, you're in the waiting room, and your friend comes, or your, maybe your distant relative comes and says, oh, you're going to be Okay. And your response is, who are you, right? You know, like, what are you that I should trust you that I'm going to be okay, that my illness is not uh, that grave? Or your Dustin Walter tells you, oh, I should have told you, right? In the years that we haven't seen each other, I went to the best medical school in this country. I'm a medical doctor, certified and licensed by California to practice medicine. I read your chart, and I'm speaking to you not as your distant cousin. I'm speaking to you as a medical doctor and telling you you're fine. It's just a buffet you ate at DP's wedding. That's all it is. That would calm your heart. That's great. It's not just this guy off the street telling me but it's an MD telling me. Likewise, Paul is saying, stand firm. It's not just Paul, but Paul the Apostle. Timothy needed Paul to remind him of Paul's position, unique authority, that Paul was speaking as a man who had been sanctioned and commissioned by Christ himself. So, no doubt, the impact of this last loving and passionate appeal from his fellow Beloved teacher cannot be well imagined. It must have made a tremendous impact on Timothy. And we find out this little tidbit in the book of Hebrews, an anonymous letter written post Paul's death. That the writer says, Timothy has just come out of prison. So it tells us that Second Timothy was effectual. Paul's letter of encouragement was effectual to Timothy. He did not shipwreck his faith. He did not desert the faith. He did not walk away. He did not abdicate or neglect his ministry. He fulfilled it, even to the point of going to prison. So first reason was to minister to Timothy. Second reason was for Paul. Second reason Paul wrote this letter was to 
to communicate his longing for fellowship with Timothy. To share how much he loved Timothy and wanted to see him, urging him to come to be with him. In the loneliness of his dark dungeon, the heart of Paul craved the joy of the understanding and sympathetic presence of Timothy. In the face of death, Paul didn't request getting out of prison. Paul didn't request other creature comforts like that. What he wanted, what he yearned for, what he longed for was fellowship. So good for us. As Christians, we're so privileged in America to enjoy Christian fellowship like this. But it's not the reality for most Christians in the world. Oftentimes, we uh, don't appreciate how precious fellowship is to us, to our faith. What a great source of joy fellowship is as believers. I would say fellowship is uh, one of the most joyous and encouraging aspects of the Christian life. I'll confess, I'm a fellowship monger. I, I, I love to fellowship with believers. It inspires me. It gives me great joy. That is why I check Zanga so much. Right? If I could, I'd be hanging out with you guys the whole week long. But I can't. I'm sequestered in my office and my desk with my books because that's my role in the church. I long for fellowship with you. I can't call you at work. Hey, Gary, how you doing? Right? So my way of Receiving fellowship through your emails, phone calls, meetings, and so forth, but also Zynga as well. Right? I just can't get enough, and I'm all of you. Right? It is indeed one of the main ways that God blesses us, the means of God's grace. It, God causes us to grow through fellow Christians. We're all instruments of the Redeemer's hands to one another. Right? God uses God's Word, prayer, but He uses the church. He uses fellow believers. God uses mature and godly Christians to help us in our faith to encourage us, especially through difficult times. And that's what Paul yearned for. That's what Paul longed for. Another man in prison understood this truth. April 14, 1945, a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed in the concentration camp at Flossenburg by special order of Himmler, just days before it was liberated by the Allied forces. Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for two years before his execution. He was transferred from one prison to another, Tegel, Berlin, Buchenwald, Schoenberg, and finally Flossenburg. During those two years, all contact with the outside world, most importantly, all contact with other Christians was severed. This was what was most painful to him because Bonhoeffer so treasured Christian fellowship. He wrote this in his book, Life Together. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Longingly, the imprisoned Apostle Paul calls his dearly beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to come to him in prison in the last days of his life so that he would see him again and have him near. Paul had not 
forgotten the tears Timothy shed when last they parted. Remembering the congregation in Thessalonica, Paul prayed night and day exceedingly that he might see their faces. The aged John knows that his joy will not be full until he can come to his own people and speak face to face instead of writing in ink. It is too true that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of the Christian church is an amazing gift of God's grace. Therefore, let him who has this privilege of God's grace praise God from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with other Christians. End quote. The old adage is so true, you don't appreciate something until it is gone. Bonhoeffer experienced this and so did the Apostle Paul. The last letter, at the close of his letter, Paul's command to Timothy was, chapter 4, verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. Do your best. I long to see you. I long for your companionship. Long for your fellowship. Third and final purpose is to charge Timothy. It's to command him, commission him. He knows his days are numbered, his death is imminent. Before he goes, he wants to commission Timothy to do the work of the ministry. The key verse in Second Timothy is chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. And the final three words of that verse... Fulfill your ministry. If I were to title Second Timothy, I give it one singular theme, it would be those three words. Paul writes Timothy to tell him this. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Paul wanted Timothy to fully understand that Timothy, like the apostle himself, was under divine compulsion as a minister of Christ to carry out the ministry of Christ. His final words, Timothy, include few commendations, but many admonitions and 25 imperative commands. There are 25 commands in this book, and nine of them are found in chapter 4. He ends in a flurry. He ends with a list of, of exhortations, commands to Timothy. Timothy, I'm leaving this earth. My fight, my race, my faith is ended. It is your turn. Fulfill your ministry. These aren't merely suggestions from a loving friend or advisor. These are divinely inspired commands from an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he wrote Timothy to commission him before his departure. Well, we'll continue next week. And we'll get into this book. A few final thoughts. Uh, a few final thoughts. You know, more and more as I 
minister in the church and grow as a believer and as a pastor, I understand that each believer, each person is different. And there are some out there who are weaker, more timid, more prone to anxiety and fear. Take courage and take heart. That does not disqualify you from following Christ, nor does it disqualify you from serving Christ. Timothy is a clear example of that. Of all the men that Timothy could have partnered with, all the men, the one closest to him was Timothy, a man who struggled with timidity, who struggled with fear, with doubt. If that is you today, um, this letter is almost, in a unique way, written to you. And as it was used by God through the Holy Spirit to encourage and equip Timothy, we humbly believe, for timid souls, this letter will be all the more effectual for your faith in your efforts to serve Christ and make Him known. If you're timid today about going to the car wash, sharing the gospel, maybe skip lunch and meditate on Second Timothy. Maybe memorize Second Timothy one seven. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, dunamis, love, and self-discipline of self-control. Also, um, this misunderstanding where people say, I don't come to church for people. Well, you don't. I come to church for people, right? If you guys weren't here, I don't come to church, right? I go to some other church, right? There's no one here. Why should I come? Right? We come to church because we love God and we love God's people. The value of fellowship in the Christian life. Are you a lone ranger? Right? Are you trying to run this race by yourself? Then you're stronger than Paul. Wow, you're stronger than Christ. Because Christ in Gethsemane took Peter, James, and John. You don't need anyone. You're so mature. You're so godly. You don't need to confess your sins to anyone. You don't have any sins to confess. You don't need accountability. You don't need um, someone to run this race with. The truth is you do. That God designed us for the church, for fellowship. only thing that's hindering it is my pride and your pride. Let us humble ourselves, lower our guard, and receive the gift that God has given to us, the gift of fellowship in Christ's local church. Christ's local church. Look, the Bible alone is not sufficient. And all those books that you're reading are not sufficient. They're not. Right? You know, all the good books and good sermons you listen to, and you no. Know, fellow Christians are irreplaceable for maturity for Christian sanctification. I know guys who know the Bible so well, but man, they have so many gaps in their character, so many blind spots in their walk because they surround themselves with books and it puffs them up and they don't surround themselves with fellow believers who will call them out and speak the truth to them in love. So don't 
wait till your last hour on this earth to long for fellowship. Right? Don't wait till uh, God puts you in a place where you truly appreciate fellowship. You have that privilege now. Take advantage of it. Be stirred by Paul's example. Be stirred by it. And commit yourself to intimate fellowship with one another. And finally, let's study this book together. Right? Let's be uh, active students of the Bible. Please don't come to Sunday after Sunday. Uh, James, I don't think about your... I forgot we're studying Second Timothy. I thought we're still in John. Right? Well, you know, and you just kind of sit there and like an amoeba, try to soak it in and uh, you want to... You just hear the applications and just... It's just you write it down and that's good. And you come back next week and you find your Bible. You left it here from last Sunday and it's in the same place. It's summer vacation and there's no one here. So pick it up again and you just write, write where you left off. Right? That's not, that's not my job. My job is not to live your Christian life, to have you apply it. It's to help you and for you to help me. Let's study Second Timothy together. Now with hearts all and minds, let's seek to be learners of God's Word, but not just through knowledge, but being doers of the Word of God, applying it diligently to our lives. This is why we've changed the format of flocks. Our flock is now one another time. It's application time. It's prayer time. It's not another time to study the Bible. We're studying the Bible on Sundays, first hour and second hour. Let's study it deeply here together, actively, And let's commit ourselves, all of us here together as a church, to live out 2 Timothy in our lives during the week. May God bless our efforts. I'm going to start verse 1 next week. May God bless each one of us as we delve into the truths of this beautiful book. Let's pray. Father, though this book was written 2,000 years ago, the, the pathos of it, the drama, the passion, the tears with which Paul wrote this letter, we can sense these things as we read, as we meditate, as we study. Lord, um, our hearts are just filled with joy for the great gift that you've given to us in the Apostle Paul. What a treasure he is indeed to us. And Lord, yes, Christ set an example for us, but he is God in flesh. He could not sin. It was not possible because he had an impeccable character. He was a thrice holy God. But Lord, for you to uh, use a, the worst of all sinners, at least in Paul's eyes, and to mold him into a man to be such an example to us, source of encouragement. Lord, we give you praise for you are the giver of this gift. May we um, receive it with both hands and take to heart his life and his instructions and resolve to make this letter alive in our lives. May the church and our members of our family, may the world see this letter alive, vibrant, on fire, 
by how we conduct ourselves, how we live out our lives, how we make our decisions, by them seeing what we live for, what we suffer for, and what we will die for. May the truths of your scriptures come alive in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.